Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Avatar Returns. I'm your host, Paul Smith of the Gobbledy Geek Podcast, and joining me, as always, are... I'm Eric Sipple. And I'm Arlo Wiley. And each week, we discuss two to four episodes of the Nickelodeon animated series Avatar The Last Airbender and its sequel series The Legend of Korra. Eric and I have seen both series before, but this is Arlo's first trip to the world of Avatar, so there will be spoilers, but only up through the episodes that we are discussing tonight. Um, And tonight... Just for Arlo, especially for Arlo, we have three chapters in a row of The Legend of Korra with absolutely no Mako. So tonight we're going to be... That did not even occur to me. That's how, that's how much I enjoyed it. It didn't even occur to me that you know, it, the show, it, it felt natural without, it felt right without Mako. You're a monster. You were a monster. So uh, there is zero, the the Mako quotient for these chapters, zero. We're, we're uh, discussing chapters 404, The Calling, 405, Enemy at the Gates, and 406, Battle of Zafu. Man, I, hold on. I'm, I, I feel really bad. I've been defending Mako on the show, and I didn't realize that he was out for all three of these episodes. <laughs> Exactly. Although I do, although I do have a Mako-related thing where Erin was watching a little bit of the show with me again, and she looked up when Bolin was on, and she said, "Is that, is that the guy who's like the guard?" And I was like, "I'm not sure what you mean. He's with the the military." He's like, "No, he's like annoying. He's the guarding the annoying guy." I was like, "No, that's that's his, that's his brother." <laughs> he was just like, "Oh, okay, okay." Poor Mako. Now, to be fair, Lynn wasn't in this either. Did anybody miss Lynn? It actually did. It actually did occur to me that Lynn wasn't in this. God, I was trying to trip you up and take up for Mako, but you son of a bitch! All I, right. I did not. I, I. I mean, I did notice that Lynn was in it, but mostly because was not in it because Lynn has barely been in it this yeah. season. Yeah, yeah. There's been very That's little true. Lynn. And it, it bums me out. But we but actually. I will say that Aaron, but the, actually, the real thing of this is that Mako made an impression on Aaron. That's really the moral of the story. Is that okay. Arlo thinks of it as forgettable, but she saw Bolin, the one who you would think of as more memorable, and she thought, is that Mako? <laughs> um, okay. That's, that's, that's one way to interpret what she said. Hey, hey, and the annoying guy wasn't Mako. He was guarding the annoying guy. So she, she felt for his plight on top of everything else. See, she fair. got the empathy for the character with very little information on this. <laughs> that's that. Good for her. Aaron is an, is an evolved human. I can't wait until the next three episodes that are all Mako. So. <laughs> 100% Mako. Yeah. It, it really is, you know, I'm making this joke, but it, it really is the mark of a, of a quality show when someone who is, doesn't know the show, has not been watching anything about the shows, and barely is paying attention when they're on because it's not a show they watch, that bits of, like, of things about the show can set in, like, like character impressions... Um, just like things like that, when those things start to stick and like the second time you've ever looked at a show, you're remembering things from it. That's always a good sign yeah. for a show. So yeah. I think it's I, I, I always can tell because like Aaron's comments on stuff that she doesn't watch that I watch. You can tell the quality of the show based on the nature of those comments. And and Cora is a good show is the <laughs> summary of that. It, so it gets, of, some... Cora gets the uh, the Aaron has barely paid attention and still picked stuff up uh, stamp of approval is what you're saying. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Right. We can continue now that we've had this little digression. Thank you. I'd just like to point out, uh, possibly the first time in the history of the series, we have watched um, an episode that had more Asami than it did Mako. So, 
Anyways. Oh, wow. Good okay. point. I, I'm a Mako defender, but that's not a sad thing for me. No, no that's pretty great. Uh, it's it's sad in the sense that uh, that only happened because there was absolutely zero <laughs> Mako. There was barely any Asami. But... I feel like over the course of the series, there's been like a, a dearth of Asami. Like really, there what, truly has. There, there, there needed to have been much more Asami. I totally it, agree. And every time she shows up, she like kind of owns the show for her brief time, either in or out of action. I mean, like even on an action level, she gets one of my, still one of my favorite moments of the series was her coming off like the with the was it off the motorcycle with her electric glove? Yeah, yeah, that, that yeah. was amazing. It was just so good. All right, before we actually talk about the show, though, uh, Arlo is going to uh, provide a little continuity between uh, podcast episodes. For for once, Arlo is actually going to serve a purpose here, so he's going to follow up on something that he, uh, he teased last week. So, Arlo, uh, what do you have for us today? Paul, I am nothing if not consistent. What I strive to bring to each and every you podcast I do... <laughs> You could have just let it. I'm going to edit it, so that's what you say, just so you know. I still, I am secretly hoping that every time we do one of these, you're just editing all of our words out of sequence to be like, Paul Smith is great. Like, I, 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 I don't listen to them. So, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, last week I had told you, the listening audience, that uh, I was going to introduce uh, Amber, my fiance, to Star Wars. Uh, that weekend and it happened it finally happened um we st- to recap we started against my advice with the prequels mm-hmm. um i lost that battle a long time ago uh but so so i in one day this past sunday we watched almost the entire prequel trilogy save for an hour of a revenge of the sith which we finished this afternoon, and then immediately followed with Rogue One. Now, you may remember, I can't remember if this was on the show or not, um, I had told Paul I was not going, we we were not going to watch Rogue One in between the prequel trilogy and the original trilogy. I changed my mind. I didn't know Paul, like, I didn't realize that was an oath I was swearing to Paul. (laughs) Paul has taken great offense to the fact that I changed my mind about something. Um, but that's, that's indeed, that is how I did it. Um, and I have to say it's, it's going pretty well. I, uh, I, I asked her if I could refer to her as a star Wars fan and she said, yes. So it's, it's going pretty well. I would, I would say she likes the prequels better than I do. Um, that's exciting. That's, that's exciting. I'm, I, I mean, that's a mixed blessing, I suppose. <laughs> hey, hey, I, I'm not gonna. There's not gonna be any, any, any uh, prequel hate. There's, they had their own problems that I'm sure she saw, but I'm glad that she found the enjoyment in them. And I'm, I'm she, also glad that you did your own thing, even though Paul would not condone a course of action that would lead you to watch Rogue One before a new hope. <laughs> hey, I would just like to. I would just like to point out. I'm pretty sure this was on the show, and I was. I raised the question because I kind of thought maybe you should, if you're starting with the prequels, maybe you should put Rogue One in between. That was really where I was going. And you sort of, you did the audio equivalent of turning your fucking nose up at that suggestion. (laughs) 
<laughs> for which I, I for which I uncharacteristically immediately felt guilty that I had raised a stupid question to Arlo. <laughs> you felt guilty? I was like, oh, geez, he's right. That's really dumb. I don't know even why why I brought that up. Fuck. I'll, I I'm, I should edit that out of the show. I don't want people to know I even thought of that. And then of course you pull your typical douche move and change your mind to do it. I just want you to know that that feeling that you felt in that moment, (laughs) that's the feeling I I strive for every time I talk to you. Well, anytime I direct words, the words that that are leaving my lips are directed to you. I want you to feel that sense of guilt and shame. Okay. Well, just so we're clear after, Um, after, almost a decade of podcasting you've got one notch on your belt congratulations (laughs) well the reason i decided to do that is because like initially like i was i didn't know if i wanted to break away from the main narrative Mm -hmm. um and also you know rogue one being you know the first star wars story as they're calling them feels you know i mean there's definitely a difference between the prequels and the original trilogy in many respects but they have the same feel Mm-hmm. For the most part, you know, Rogue One is a pretty radically different uh, movie in, in in terms of the Star Wars universe. So I wasn't sure. But then when, you know, when we we're watching the prequels, I was like, there's really like she knows all of the big story beats in the Star Wars universe. She's familiar with the the iconography. Like, there's no reason not to slot that in there since it technically, you know, it, it happens in between the two movies. Well, I'll tell you the reason why I kind of brought it up last week is uh, I I feel like we were talking about or talking around the notion that um, the prequel trilogy has like all this pretty advanced like technology, like not only from a filmmaking perspective, but also just an in-universe perspective. The technology seems light years ahead of what you uh, eventually see in the chronologically later films and my sense of uh of rogue one is that it felt a little bit like it was kind of a bridging like i don't know it felt like some of the technology was a nice midpoint between the prequels and the original well see my read on that was always just by the time we get to the original trilogy i mean because of the the shitty conditions of the empire um, you know, all of that tech has been, you know, mm-hmm. laid to waste or is only being used by the elite. So that, that was, that was always my read on that. Um, but back, back to, um, back to what she thought of the movies. Um, like I said, she seemed to really enjoy all of them. Um, at one point though, she did turn to me and tell me that she liked Jar Jar Binks. Oh, um, yes. yes. Oh, and, that makes me so happy to hear. Not and really because ha- I'm a big defender, but that's just so pleasing on its own. It's it's pleasing and to know that Arlo will spend the rest of his life with uh, a Jar Jar Binks fan. That's what's pleasing. I uh, He's just so happy. I just <laughs> I just want you all to know I'm looking at right at her as I say this. I thought about calling off the wedding. <laughs> She's at the very beginning. Um. Anyway. Uh, she's gave me a, a she's giving me a death glare currently. I I will not survive this podcast. Sweet. Um, <clears throat> however, I she she did agree with me that uh, Anakin and Padme are a couple of fucking morons. Yep. Um, 
that have zero chemistry together. At one point, uh, she said, how did the two, the two of them not only survive, but reproduce with each other? Which I think is, is a, is a very valid question. Carlo, are you, have you heard the legend? Have you heard the legend of dark Plagius the wise? Because (laughs) it said he could create life. And I think he had something to do with this because nothing else could account for it. (laughs) Yeah. So, but no, apart from that, uh, she enjoyed them. And, you know, Rogue One is, um, I, this is the first time I've seen it since theaters, which, you know, was only a few months ago, but, um, it, it was good seeing it again. I, I, I enjoyed it. She enjoyed it. Um, though the, the fact that, uh, you know, literally everyone died may not have, uh, sat well with her. Um, but yeah, it's the, the moral of the story is it's going really well. And I'm excited. Um, hopefully this weekend we'll be able to at least start watching the original trilogy. So we'll see how it goes. Excellent. I'm I'm hoping she's bored shitless by A New Hope. God damn it. God, God damn it, Eric. <laughs> okay, well... Um... Why must you always destroy my happiness? Speaking, speaking you of... This, uh... You are a specter hanging over my life during every good moment... Eric Simple is in the back of my mind taunting me. God, that, Hi. that needs to go, that needs to go on Simple's fucking tombstone, man. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, speaking of uh, the Empire Strikes Back and Dagobah, let's get back to uh, Legend of Korra. Such a reach, dude. I know. I, I tried. We don't. We don't have Ken. We we discovered last night recording Gobble Geek that Ken Edwards needs to be our uh, our on staff segue person. And uh, I won't spoil the segue that he made in the, the, the most recent episode of Gobbledy Geek about why the last man, but it was so beautiful. It was like half a dozen words, quick to the point, got us there. It was amazing. <laughs> it was so much better than anything we have ever done. Mm-hmm. So much better than we deserve. But anyways, all right. So uh, let's, uh, let's move on. <laughs> The people have spoken, by the way. So last week, I, I very unceremoniously tried to change the format that we've had for this uh, podcast for the past uh, 10 years or, or however fucking long we've been doing this. <laughs> uh, did not go over very well. Um, I will just say I have heard the voice of the people, uh, the voice of the people in this instance being um, Eric and Arlo. <laughs> and uh, we will not be doing... Uh, a synopsis of the top of every show. So instead we'll just go back to the way we have always done it. Uh, and I'll throw to the noob, Arlo Wiley. Uh, what did you think of these three episodes? We'll, well start. Well, with... do, we, do we name the episodes? We do at least name the episodes. Did yeah, you we mentioned at the beginning. I okay. mentioned at the I'm beginning. Uh, we're going to start right now Wait. with chapter 404, the calling. So go ahead, Arlo. And I do just want to, I, I want to clarify your synopses are, are very good. Just, you know, as as Eric pointed out, you know, we're we're almost done with the show. A, a format changes late in the game just feels unnatural. I mean, it feels unnatural anytime you say anything, Paul, but especially in this case. Okay, sure, All right. whatever. So, uh, so so yes. Uh, moving on to uh, uh, four hundred four, the calling. Um, so this was the uh, like the. Uh, Team Avatar Junior mm-hmm. episode. This was the uh, the the Air Kids. 
the air kids. Um, yeah. the, the, the air kids. The, the, I want to note that this episode was written by my personal favorite writer of Avatar, Katie Matilla. Yes. Shout out to Katie Matilla of The Beach and many other great episodes. So nice, uh, nice. Laying that down, and which which I think t- lines up with this being Team Avatar Junior episode. She was great with the the beach stuff, so it makes sense to give this episode to her. I I like this episode. I like the fact that as the series is winding down, we finally get an episode all about the air kids, as they will henceforth be known. Um, <laughs> especially Iki gets her own moment in a because prior to this episode, I'm not sure I could have told you a single thing about Iki, except that she's. You know, she was the middle child, and that's She's... sort of the point. The middle child is always the one who gets uh, ignored. Yep. And as viewers, we have ignored her. As writers, they probably have ignored her. And so now we get uh, a plot where she is very happily kidnapped, and in, <laughs> do, doesn't want to go back because she'd rather be tied up to a chair hanging out with the with the Earth Kingdom soldiers, or I'm sorry, the Earth Empire soldiers, um, instead of with her. Uh, big sister and little brother yeah viewers will note that i don't take notes during um during these episodes but if i did when iki stormed off into the woods i would have written down martha 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 <laughs> uh, i believe it's marcia marcia jeez lord oh man see i'm all thrown off today man everything is everything is wrong this whole this whole Rogue One thing just just totally Start, toppled my world. Yeah, yeah, I, man. I think it was I I think it was Paul reading the synopsis last week. I haven't felt right since. God, see, this is well, this is a good sign of why I should actually take notes instead of trying to remember what I was thinking. At a we time, so. we are spending more time well, mocking my synopses what, than it would have taken for me to just read the fucking synopsis. So. What, what I love, Eric. What I love, Eric, is that even if you had taken notes, you would have the quote would have been inaccurate. You're right. I would have written it down wrong. I would have. I would have, or I would have just written it so sloppily I couldn't have read it, and I would have read it wrong when I did it. Something would have gone wrong. <laughs> well, maybe if you read it so sloppily, if you wrote Martha so sloppily you couldn't read it, then you would have said Marcia. You would have misread Martha. it as Marcia. Yeah. Um, all right. So, so anyway, I, I have to ask this, this episode. The the uh, the air kids the team avatar or what they are the ang gang jr that's what i called them yeah um i, I feel like it kind of gets overlooked a lot uh, i think most fans think of it as kind of a filler episode um i i when i was watching it that occurred to me i was like most fans probably hate this i disagree with that i actually quite enjoy this episode um Good. I, I'm guessing I was, Eric I does. This. I, I was going to say, I guess Eric does too, because he he already highlighted uh, Katie Matilla as the writer. But um, or is she the writer or director? What did she? Writer. 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 Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> there's no reason why I should love this episode as much as I do, because I hate kids, <laughs> and because Milo, as I think is demonstrated in this episode, I'm I'm going to I'm going to damn the episode with faint praise here by saying that Milo is best digested in very, very small doses. And so having an episode where he really has the majority of the dialogue uh, is running a risk. And there's no reason why I should come out of it liking it so much, but I, I really enjoyed it. It was, the thing is like, it has, it has some like amazing little bits in it. And also, I mean, this is also where it's a tough episode. Too. Yes. Yeah. So let's not let's not forget that there is a top element to this. But um, the thing this has one absolutely classic scene in it, which is one of its sequence 
which which is um Iki conning her way out of an interrogation. <laughs> Good lord, what is that? So uh uh Listeners may have noticed on um, the last couple episodes of this and Geek that I've been recording on my phone because of computer issues, and uh, I forgot to turn off my notifications, so that's what you were hearing. <laughs> I thought it was, it was just Arlo's phone's way of saying, Eric, shut up. Anyways, no, so, well, <laughs> I'm proud of you, um, phone. But uh, Iki getting herself out of the interrogation through pure, like, amazing, like, pseudo-friendliness, and uh, I think she has a a really amazing line, which was hit me with one of those macaroons, I think was the, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. um, just like that, that sequence alone made the episode worth it. And I thought it was a good episode otherwise, but that sequence was pure brilliance. And, and actually in a very avatar mold, I would say that reminded me of, of avatar. That whole thing uh, there. Yeah. They, the Jinora got not as much time in this episode, which is fine because she is of the three kids. She's the one that's obviously had the most screen time up till now. So this episode was much more about Milo and, and Iki uh, deservedly. So, and both of them, I, I really felt both of those kids, uh, Ang's grandkids really channeling their grandfather. Um, Milo, quite obviously he's, he's, he's a much uh, more, he's a slightly darker form of mischievous than Aang ever was. Aang was always a little more innocent, not quite as sinister, I guess, as Milo can be. But Milo has uh, the same kind of, you know, uh, mischief maker, uh, playful little brat thing that Aang had sometimes, especially when he was flirting with the girl on the street. Milo's a sociopath. He he is. He really is. He He really is. But I, I love Milo and Maybe apparently, unlike you, Paul, I didn't think this was too much of him. Now, if if this was every episode, if there was this much Milo every episode, that might be a problem. Mm -hmm. But I loved like, you know, just getting like a concentrated dose of Milo's sociopathic ridiculousness. No, I didn't. I actually that's kind of what I was getting at. For some reason, I didn't feel like it was too much. It it should be too much because um, just every all evidence of Milo before this has been like, he's really funny, but I'm glad he's not a main character of the show. And so we get an episode where, you know, in a, in a, what, a 24, 27 minute long episode, probably 10 minutes, full 10 minutes of it are dedicated to Milo. Um, Tell me in advance that that's going to happen. Like when we're watching an earlier episode where he's just fart bending all over the place and you say, well, mm-hmm. just wait till book four. You're going to get 10 full minutes of Milo. And I'd be like, oh, God, kill me now. But it works. No, I totally. Speaking I of, of farting, I love when Iki wanders off on her own. She is like, <laughs> my name is Milo. I like to throw away food and fart at inappropriate moments. Yes, that was a yet another brilliant moment. That line was great. There's a lot of really funny things in this episode, actually. There are. This is a really fun episode in the middle of um, what has been a very serious season with, you know, the the requisite, you know, Avatar Korra wackiness thrown in a little bit. I mean, Prince Wu, come on. Um, but in the middle of, of what some very serious goings on, we get a mostly comic relief episode. And yeah, it was it was it was great. And I, and I do love at one point, uh, speaking of Milo's sociopathic tendencies, at one point, Iki turns to Janora and she's like, remember when he used to seem nice and sweet? And she's just like, no. No. 
<laughs> because that's not uh, that's not Milo. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so uh, like Eric said, this was not all the kids. Uh, we also had Toph and uh, and Cora. So let's talk about uh, the Avatar's role in this ap- episode, which reminds me of another quote, which I feel like is very significant. It was kind of a throwaway line. Um, someone mm-hmm. said it to the kids while they were uh, on their quest to find the Avatar. Uh, someone said, the Avatar, we still have one of those? Yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. Very important line, I feel like. I, I agree with you, because that's been the whole point of this season and maybe the entire series. You know, Korra and the role of the Avatar slipping into irrelevance mm-hmm. and to to see that the average person on the street you know seems to think like thinks so little of the avatar that they can't even remember if there is one um speaks a lot to the theme of uh of this book yeah we've come a, far, a long way from uh, the very first episode opening with i'm the avatar you gotta deal with it yeah now it's i'm the avatar please god remember me <laughs> yes, exactly <laughs> um yeah. All right. So, uh... but this is like really like a another top grade Toph episode with Toph's total yes. irritation with Korra's self like self pity and like inability to like move beyond where she is. And um, even though Korra has extremely good reasons to be feeling like shit right now, but it, this is the episode I think that has her trying to get Toph to tell stories. Right? Is this the episode mm-hmm. that? Yeah. Which yeah. was which was phenomenal. You're you're terrible at telling stories. Well, you're terrible at listening to them. Yeah, uh, it it was What's hot. I was on a blimp, and I think a giant turtle showed up. <laughs> yes. And then, uh, what's what's there to tell? I threw some rocks at the avatar. He got all whiny, and Sokka fell in a hole. <laughs> so perfect. So perfect. <laughs> We did like a two-hour-long episode about the Avatar: The Last Airbender uh, finale, and and Toph sums it up with. Uh, it was hot. I was on a blimp, and I think a giant turtle showed up. So, so beautiful. Oh man, I I have loved. I I think of all of the you know elderly versions of the Aang gang that we've gotten to see, Toph is my favorite. Absolutely. I mean, she is so perfectly deployed here, and just yeah. And you know, we we talk about how you know, this episode has been mostly a comedy episode with. Uh, with the air kids. Um, but this, the taffa with Toph, even though it is still funny is very important. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it packs at the end, the end of it packs a punch. So I mean, and uh, leading up to it, we get some, like the Cora's hallucinations in the swamp uh, are, uh, are serious. Oh, yeah. Business. yeah. Yeah. She, you know, she doesn't realize that Toph has basically led her to the swamp on purpose so that she can get in, in touch with with herself. All, all um, we needed was Cora asking uh, asking Toph what's in there, and Toph saying only what you bring with you. <laughs> <laughs> would have been our, our journey to Dagobah would have been complete. Um, <laughs> that did not even occur to me. It oh, did man. not even occur it to is, me. Wow. It is so it's so the Dagobah Cave of Evil or whatever the hell that thing is called. This this whole thing <laughs> is so on the nose with its Yoda references and yet is so specific to the actual world and story that it's telling yeah. that it never feels that way until you step take a step back and right. realize what it's doing. Like it's yeah. not it doesn't feel that way. It never feels like a reference in and of itself. But yeah. it is so much the Dagobah stuff that it's great. This is exactly how to do a reference actually. Is you make it your own 
so that you don't need the reference to really appreciate it. But if you step back, you're like, okay, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You like that too. That's cool. (laughs) So we, the three of us have talked about this, uh, the parallels between all of the antagonists in previous books. We've talked about that several times on the show. It hasn't really been made uh, explicit on the show until tonight. And it's Toph, the speaker of truths that gets to break it down when she, uh, you know, lays out the whole uh, ideological extremes that all of the various uh, antagonists Mm -hmm. went to. So she, according to Toph's, Analysis: Amon wanted equality for all. Unalak invited spirits back into the world that they'd been cut off from. And Zahir believed in freedom. So all of those, you know, if you just say it like that, that's that sounds great. Like none of those sound like evil. Um, but her point is that all of the men that had been pushing those ideologies were out of balance. Um, right. And they took their ideologies too far. Right. So what, I mean... Arlo, uh, you being the noob, do you think that's a lesson for Cora? Like, is she, what lesson could she possibly take from that? And do you think she will take any lesson? Was she going to learn from that example? Well, the, the, the title of this book is balance. So hopefully she's hearing what Toth is saying and she will be able to, to balance those, to balance those qualities, those beliefs with one another and to find balance um, within herself. I mean, cause that's what she tries to do at the end of the episode when she, you know, manages to remove the poison mm-hmm. from herself and then Toph seals it in a, in a rock and buries it underground. Um, yeah. She needs to, she needs to bring balance to the world. She needs to be bringing balance to herself. She needs to bring balance to all of these, uh, you know, uh, opposing ideologies. It's, it's a tall task, but hopefully she's up to it. So I, I love the fact that um, most, not all, but most episodes of uh, The Legend of Korra have uh, an action beat at the end. Like there, there are certain beats that, this, that the episode follows, and there's almost always some sort of action beat towards the end. And in this, the action beat is not like... Uh, uh, a fight sequence between Cora and X or whatever. The action beat here is her fighting, <laughs> fighting her own like internal, the, the physical representation of her internal demons, the remaining poison in her system. And uh, I just love the fact that she, the, the sort of kata that she does, the move, the bending moves and stances that she uses I thought maybe I'm imagining this. You guys can tell me, but I thought it looked like a pretty convincing uh, blend between earth bending and water bending. Earth bending, obviously, because she's 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 metal bending to get it out of her system at all. And just the way it flowed, like some of her stances looked very solid, like earth bending, but there was a lot of flowing. And then the the movement of her arms when she was actually getting it to flow out of her looked like a water bending move. So. Well, you know, that's actually a really good call out because the stance is pure earthbending. Like yeah. she her her stance is that very steady, not quite horse stance um foot placing that mm-hmm. that I Plant, see as earthbending. Yeah, plants her feet shoulder width apart, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and but you're right, the but it has the sort of more tai chi feel of water bending in the actual moves she's doing. This is a really good scene. Yeah. Like this is just a really really good scene, but I I agree. I love 
and this maybe like really gets really purely to why Avatar is so good at its like I don't want to say its magic system because that sounds like a boring way of saying it, but the way that it uses the animation of the movement is part of what's going on. So like it's not just that it's powerful emotionally, which it is because Korra is getting over her her uh, inner demons a little bit, but the actual physical motions of it are so well considered that it's like it's just so immersive. I don't know. I'm like this is like. This is why the Avatar verse is so powerful, is because they can do a scene like this, and it's rooted so much in what the show is. I'm I, I was really blown away by the scene. If you can't tell, and, and because we don't talk about the music often enough, we should say that uh, this this scene in particular was a moment where Jeremy Zuckerman's score I felt like really, sh- you know, stood out to me. Just the music yeah. that he laid underneath that scene was beautiful. So. Good episode. Um, all right, so let's uh, move on to the next one, Arlo. Should, um, should we talk about these next two together, or are we going to talk about them separately? Because this felt like a two-parter to me, so I'm just curious because it's going to be hard to talk about. It kind of did, yeah. I, I I think it will be tough to talk about them separately. All right, let's let's go together. Four oh five, Enemy at the Gates, and four oh six, Battle of Zalfu. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the, the talking about about both of them together is a double-edged sword because now i'm just like a lot of shit happens in these episodes like where do you begin um well let's begin with um well okay no never mind you're the noob i'll let you start go ahead (laughs) well i think i think i'll first of all i'll pick up from a question i had last week about you know how can bolin be working with kuvira how can he not realize what she's doing that she's turning into a fascist mm-hmm. um and here we get a little bit more of that and we get to see him slowly realizing what's going on and having seen these episodes now i'm not sure why i had such a problem believing it last week because clearly this is in bolin's nature mm-hmm. bolin is such a, a friendly naive guy wants to do the best wants to believe the best of everyone around him that he sees an opportunity to help to help unify the earth kingdom that's a good thing as Toph pointed out earlier that's a good thing to want to do and he you know he just wants to believe everybody's being friendly and everybody's getting along and he has not stopped to think about the way in which kuvira is uniting the, the uniting the Earth Kingdom, or what happens to the those people after they leave if they're sent to, uh, you know, re-education centers or uh, internment camps? Re- Man. What, what was what was what was his quote on what the re-education centers were? Bolin had a choice quote on that. Oh, I thought that's where we sent people to learn new life skills or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Bolin! It was like a career center or something. This. You, you, you know, Arlo, I, I remember not having any problems with um, Bolin's like attachment to Kavir early on, and I couldn't remember exactly why. I just remember that it had worked for me. I didn't expect to get the answer for why it had worked for me so quickly. Um, I, for some reason, I thought this went on a little longer than it did, but uh, I, I agree. I, I thought they did a good job of leaning right into Bolin's naive optimism and just how much it led him down a bad path. Because as soon as he starts seeing the bad things, he's... He's freaked out. Fine. And, and what I oh, go ahead. What I love is that last week, Eric, you made a very salient point that um, 
you know, oftentimes when Bolin has been led down this path, um, he has been accompanied or led by Varric. And I love that he and Varric both have their their oh shit moment at literally at the exact same time. Kuvira's um, crazy. Because... <laughs> yeah. And even though Varric may have, you know, uh, a brilliant mind and be a, a, a deeply deceptive con man, he himself um, is pretty, pretty naive. I mean, we've seen the way he treats Julie, and that's always been a funny running joke. But in this epi- these episodes, Julie actually becomes a person. Mm-hmm. And we realized that, yeah, in real life, if you're going to treat somebody like that for years on end, they're going to resent you and turn on you. So and these, that, in these two episodes, Julie gets more dialogue than in the entire series leading up to it. Yes. So I got, I got it. I, I really need, I need Arlo. I need your, I need how you felt about the, the, um, Varric Julie drama plot in this. How did, how did you, how did this feel? I want your reaction. I loved it because it actually, you know, makes real a character that has just been a punchline this entire time. And, uh, also because it's pitched at, at the level of comedy, a lot of it, like Varric's, you know, you know, well, first of all, the, the near romantic moment between them mm-hmm. at the beginning <laughs> and then, um, Varric, Varric's whole thing, like, you know, you're going to be, I don't, I forget exactly what he says, but you're going to become a verb in the future. They'll just say, you know, this, this guy really Varric because his, his, his woman just you lead him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so a lot of it's pitched at that, Ver- that, very Varric level of uh, comedy, and so it, it worked for me. Like if it had taken like a super seriously melodramatic route, that might, I might have felt differently. But because it's still, it's still funny. I was I was really into it. So so uh, report on Aaron's like random reactions to things on Cora that she comes in. So she walked in during the sequence when um, they're trying to escape, and Julie goes up the hatch and like. Varric like motions for her to go up the hatch and put her arms down to pick him up, and she laughed at that. So that was a funny. It's like, but and then I I made I started making Julie do the thing jokes, and she was like, "What's that?" I was like, "His assistant." She's like, "Oh, the person who did the the pull up thing." Like, yeah. So, anyways, then Aaron starts making Julie do the thing jokes. The yes. rest of the morning. Yes. So there cannot I, be I, there cannot be enough Julie do the thing jokes out there. So that is then, that is how, how then, potent the Julie stuff is in the show, that with almost nothing, you can get someone into Julie yeah, do the thing jokes. Yeah. And then, of course, we have Bolin, do the thing. What's the thing? <laughs> I didn't write to tell Julie what the thing was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, so this uh, this like possible redemption arc that Varric is on, are you are you liking that, Arlo, or are you worried that they're going to ruin the character? Like we've loved him as a I, as a scamp this whole time. I like it because once they do escape, Varric has like no like he's not even considering like doing anything to save Republic City. Like he just wants to get out of there. So like if if he had done like a complete one eighty and become like. A heroic person instead of someone who's just out to save his own skin. Um, I might have felt like they were betraying who the character is, but this seems very, this is again, well, very, very. It, 
interestingly, he does comment on saving Republic City because the, when they when they first escape in the mech suits, you know, Bolin's like, all right, here's how we're going to get back into into Zalfu. And uh, Varric's like, we're not going back to Zalfu. That place is done for. We got to get to Republic City and warn everybody about Kuvira's uh, super weapon. Which is, oh, you're I love right, it. It's, you're right. to, it's totally pragmatic, though. It's totally Varric. Like, if he had been selfless about Zalfu, like, he doesn't care about that. There's a bigger problem. That's... There's this laser to solve. Yeah. That, that's what I meant. That's why I, I meant uh, Zalfu when I said Republic City. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. How, how I know this takes place during the sequence, so I just have to say, how good is this mecha battle? Oh, Jesus. How awesome is this battle? I was so... Uh, mecha battles are my thing anyways. Yeah. Good yeah. Lord, is this a sequence. This is so good. It's not just mecha versus mecha. And Julie, by the way, is a phenomenal mecha pilot. Yeah, um, yeah she is. Uh, but Bolin lava bending versus mechas. Yes. Too. Oh, I was so happy to see that because we've gone far enough. We're we're I guess that was five episodes into the season, and no one has even mentioned the lava bending again. So you know, some viewers could be forgiven if they start to wonder, did that just go away? Does he not lava bend anymore? But uh, yeah, that was awesome. And uh, yeah, Julie is a badass mecha fighter, sir. You're making this very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Who designed these things? You did. You did, sir. <laughs> Less talking, more saving my life. <laughs> or whatever he says. He is so awful in that sequence. Yeah. Um, okay, so since we're talking about the mecha fight, we have to talk about... Uh, uh, well, we just did. We talked about Bolin, but he, he's got the, the awesome lava bending scene. But let's fast forward a little bit to him. Does Bolin's sort of gullible, sweet, but dim... Uh, routine um arlo you've already said that you've come back around now and you realize that this is this is who bolin is it's believable it doesn't seem out of character whatever is any of it sort of uh redeemed by the fact that in the end he gets his like fucking james bond saving them both from certain death moment where where varick is like i'll see if he Varric goes very Hamilton, and he's like, I'll see you on the other side, Julie. And Bolin just slaps him and says, I want you to know I hate you, and then jumps out of the train. Yep. <laughs> yeah, no, that that was great. All right. and, and I think he, he's redeemed by the fact that he's not, at least as, you know, as of now, after ha- opening his eyes to what Kuvir is actually doing, he's not being led around by Varric. He's like, like you said, he, he like, he like slaps Varric across the face and, you know, is very adamant that they go back to Zalfu. So he's not, he doesn't seem like a puppet on a string right now. Yeah. I mean, that everything, and honestly, everything about Varric's whole bomb plan was phenomenal. Everything leading up to Bolin's slapping him and saying, I hate you. That bomb plan is ballsy shit, man. Well, that is, yeah, it is. pure well, Varric madness. I love it. Well, first I built the timer. But then I thought you could drag you could drag me off the train. So so then I built a remote. But then I thought, well, now do I really need the timer anymore? Because I've got a remote in my whatever. I'm covering my bases. <laughs> oh man! It's it's actually Varric because Varric can be such like a a weirdo, and he's done so many weird things. It's actually easy to forget just how brilliant yeah, he is. Yeah. And I love this bomb sequence because. It's a reminder that he is still the smartest person in the room. Mm-hmm. Even if he's a big asshole, he actually really is kind of a genius and outsmarts Batar Jr. Bolin can't keep up with him. No one has any idea what he's doing while he builds this bomb. Even while Batar Jr. 
is trying to like say, why did you do that? Yeah, but yeah, Batar Jr. is like is basically saying it looks like you pulled a bomb, but <laughs> but Varric still manages <laughs> to pull it off. Yeah. Um, uh, that that whole throw was really great. I'm like I'm I'm a huge fan of this uh, this actually everything about this plot line. Okay, so mecha suits, the the spirit laser thing. Season four of Korra goes full bore anime, mm-hmm. and I love it. And we have not hit the apex of this season's yeah. anime. By the way, we are going to go way more anime when all is said and done. But I love this series is like um, like dive into Avatar themed animeness, and and the the spirit laser is definitely one of them. Arlo, are you are you cool with the spirit laser thing? I know that it, I've seen it weird out some people. I love the idea, but I'm curious what you think. And and does it you know, Im- does it impact your opinion of it if I point out that they the spirit laser has the same sound effect as uh, Vatu's? like spirit laser or whatever that he had. That is what it is. That is what that sound is. Sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, no, the, it did occur to me, the whole spirit laser thing is very anime, like much more than Korra has ever been. Um, but I'm not opposed to it. I'm, I'm up for it. Honestly, the thing that bugged me the most about that plot was just how stupid Batar Jr. is. I'm fine with him being a complete imbecile. Like just, I mean, it's, 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 it's funny. Like all the stuff that happens is funny. I'm glad that Varric and Bolin got out of there, obviously, but it just, he's for, for somebody who's like Kuvira's right hand man, he's a fucking idiot. Now, with the exception of Opal, pretty much all of Suyin's kids are morons on one level or another. Opal's the only one who's not kind of an idiot. Her son's, her the twins are like tough but not very bright, and the dark one, whatever his name is, <laughs> is adult. Juan. Yeah, Juan. Um, so I, get your hands off me! You're crushing my individuality. Exactly. Exactly. So I, it, you know, I think I think that Suyin's kids all seem to have blind spots of various types. Yeah, and it's because they were raised as rich kids. Yeah, mm-hmm. they totally you know, were. That's, that's the whole problem with Zhao Fu is that. You know, it stopped, uh, you know, spreading the wealth. Zalfu hasn't done anything else for the rest of the Earth Kingdom. That's why Kuvira um, hates them and wants to control them. Um, and yeah, that's that's how that's how the uh, the Beifong kids were raised. Well, let's talk about uh, Kuvira and Suyin now. So, um, Kuvira, I want I, wa- I want to see what you guys think about this. Um, my take is that Kuvira has seemed fairly rational, um, if, if maybe a little militant, whatever in this whole, you know, her, her push for reunification, her great uniter, uh, shtick that she does. Um, sometimes she seems pretty, you know, on point, uh, in this episode or in these episodes, she even tells Batar Jr. She's like, you know, the eyes of the world are on, are on us. Uh, we can't be, too violent or it could jeopardize the campaign, whatever. And then immediately after that, she gives, she, she marches her army up to the gates of Zhao Fu and gives Su Yin an impossible 24 hour deadline uh, to surrender or else they are going to take the city by force. So on the one hand, she's like, no, we have to be diplomatic. Everybody's watching. We don't want to look like fascists. And then her next move is to make a, a fascist uh, ultimatum or whatever. Uh, so my question is uh, the sort of dichotomy that she's got going on between the benevolent great uniter thing and then the f- enforcing her will on others. 
that's a thing that comes up a few times. Do you guys think that's an inconsistency in the character or does that paint a more believable, realistic character? Um, well, she only goes the fascistic route after, uh, Bolin, you know, is no longer on her side, right? No. Like she was going, to, oh, she doesn't? No, they have that whole meeting okay, well. where Bolin is trying to sort of mediate, but, uh. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's what leads to that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The, no, I'm not sure. Like that, that does seem kind of like, you know, you're here to present peace and she marches her army right up to the gates. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this, and this, right. is, this is, this is Kavir's whole, whole way she's been doing things, which is that she, she has her idealistic statement and then she does this not idealistic and awful thing like marching her soldiers around or giving ultimatums. And then when questioned on it says, well, we just need to do this for the rhetoric or to make sure people know we're serious. This isn't actually who we are, but we need to make sure that no one takes us wrong. So every time she does this, this is like her, her, her total MO is to talk about ideals scare everyone and then come up with excuses for why she's being scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, but it does connect up with what you were talking about, um, Arlo with, um, you know, Zhao Fu and them being, we get, we get the origins of Kuvira's, yeah. um, break with Zhao Fu here. And I think that for me, that informs a lot. I don't know how that read for you, but that, that was a big piece of understanding Kuvira for me. Yeah that flashback yeah what do you think about that yeah yeah yeah. um i i like the content of the flashback it did seem kind of weirdly shoehorned in like because you know i have been wondering you know after the three-year time jump like i mentioned last week kuvier seemed like a like a good person you know when we saw her rescue tonrock what Mm -hmm. how how did this happen why why is she acting like this and i'm glad that we found out but it was just sort of like you know I, I don't know. It, it, it seemed it seemed kind of random, just like like thrown into the episode. Um, but I'm glad I, it was there. It, it does inform a lot about Kuvira uh, because we find out that Tenzin and Raiko had gone to Su Yin and wanted her to be the temporary uh, ruler of the Earth Kingdom, and Su Yin said no. She didn't want to do that, and I think that's sort of <clears throat> all of the resentment that. Kuvira had for Zalfu and for you know, yeah, for for Zalfu as someone who came from Zalfu, um, just sort of it immediately brought all of that to the forefront, and she, that's what led her to take the action that she did. This is not a good look for Suyin, is it? No, she doesn't come off very well in this. It's true. Oh, not in the past or in the future, by the way. I, I realize I'm right, being yeah. imprecise there, but this is overall this whole episode or these two episodes are not a good look for Su Yin. No. So yeah. So actually, that leads to my next question. Uh, I wanted to ask about um, uh, the 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 whole. Uh, I'm trying to make a Sly and the Family Stone joke here with Su Yin and the Family Ninja or something, but uh, anyways, Su Yin, uh, who's who very thoughtfully has matching ninja costumes made for her and her son, just lying around apparently. Uh, anyways, the the weird sort of uh, assassination attempt question mark that she makes at the beginning, um, obviously that was ill advised and didn't didn't work out very well. But do we think that that was justified? Her, her taking that action again um, the one against the one against Kuvira, uh, you mean? Kuvira yeah when they when they infiltrate Kuvira's camp I mean I, I get it 
Kuvira just marched her entire army mm-hmm. up to Zhao Fu. I get wanting to get in and stop her as much as possible. I think the problem with what she does is that it's not very well well thought through. Like she just they go ninja, they infiltrate the camp. They're very clearly, uh, you know, baited and switched. Thank you, Julie, for doing the thing. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it go it goes south very quickly. So, so here, here's my thought experiment question then, because I agree it's a poorly thought out thing, and the the reason it seems extra poorly thought out is because Cora has just made a deal yeah. with Kavira, yeah. uh, a yeah. like a sort of a peace deal, which I, we can talk about more that uh, more about that specific thing later. But what happens if Suyin does not do this assassination attempt? Does I have some thoughts about where this would go anyways, but I'm curious, like, what does Kuvira do, or how does this play out minus Su Yin? It's kind of playing into Kuvira's hands, honestly. Well, yeah, so... I mean, I wanted to know, did we think... And I I can guess what we think, but do we think that this was an intentional, like, deliberate, detailed manipulation on Kuvira's part? Does, does Kuvira know Su Yin well enough to know that if she shows up with her army at her doorstep, gives her 24 hours to make her make a decision uh, and then just sits back and waits, does, does she know Su Yin is going to do something drastic like this? That's a good question. I, yeah, I feel, I, I feel sure. like she does. I feel like that was an intentional, um, well, like you said, bait and switch. The fact that she had Julie, uh, you know, taking right. her place as a, as a, as bait or whatever tells me that she anticipated this. And the only way she would anticipate this is if she kind of manipulated it so that this would happen because, uh, in answer to your question, Eric, what would happen if Suyin hadn't done this? She has 24 hours to peacefully turn over Zhao Fu. Otherwise Kuvira is going to attack. If Suyin had just waited the 24 hours and still said no, then it would have been Kuvira's fault. Like Kuvira then would have been the one that the world sees launching an attack on Zaofu, whereas now Kuvira is defending herself. So, uh, Cora even says that she's to Opal. She's like, "Well, your mother, she Suyin or uh, Kuvira was defending herself. Your mother did sneak in there and attack her." Does does Kuvira just keep escalating the slights against Suyin until Suyin acts on her own? Anyways, like I feel like that's probably what Kuvira does if. If Suyin doesn't act on her own based on where they are at that point, mm. nothing about Kuvira tells me that her peace accord with the Avatar was in good faith. Nothing mm-hmm. yeah. nothing about that tells me that. Even though I don't think Kuvira is a massively evil person, it's clear Kuvira thinks this is her right to do, and it's the right thing to do, and she's going to do it one way or the other. But does she just roll in an attack, or does she continue to agitate Suyin until Suyin does the predictable thing and tries to punish Kavira for doing things. And I feel like it's that, yeah. that she would just keep poking Sue yet. Yeah. Although she didn't obviously didn't need to have to poke her too much because she played right into her damn hands, <laughs> right into her damn hands. Yeah. So, um, do you want to talk about, uh, Kuvira about that peace treaty or whatever, the whole Kuvira using her doing the whole silver tongue devil thing on Korra? Yeah, we get we get the first meetup between our our big bad and our hero. Arlo, what do you think of that? Um, well, I, what I like about all of the interactions between Korra and Kuvira is that you know last week Bolin had you know in, as a way of sort of justifying his work with Kuvira, um, 
he mentioned, you know, she, she's like Korra, you know, she wants to unite the earth kingdom and Korra immediately seizes upon that. And it's like, you know, I've had to make, you know, decisions Mm -hmm. that many people haven't liked in order to do something that I thought was the right thing to do. So she immediately wants to, you know, she relates somewhat to Kuvira, disagrees with her methods, maybe, but, but kind of sees a little bit of herself in Kuvira and wants to reason with her. Um, and you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't go well. So, so I have a very, very important thought experiment question for you all based on the fact that we finally got to see these two characters meet. If you were going to analogize Kuvira to a Buffy or Angel big bad, who would Kuvira be? Because I have two options here and I feel like it's neither, but I'm not sure. Oh man. Wow. Um, Because I feel like more than any other avatar or core of big bad, Kuvira feels like a Buffy angel big bad to me. Like, in a good way. Like, that that kind of um, bringing out something specific about the main character or reflecting something specific about the main character. Um, I'll tell you my, my feeling, okay. which is that I waffle between the mayor, uh-huh. who is very dedicated to a very specific set of things that he thinks is correct, but is also evil. Um, or Jasmine, who will bring peace to the world, but eat you. Oh, ja- shit. Jasmine and Lila were the two I was thinking of. Lila was never really the big bad, but I, I thought of Jasmine and Lila. All right. Shit, um, yeah. I, I think Jasmine is, is a great choice, actually. There you go. All right. So so she's our Jasmine. This is his angel, and we actually are in season four of both shows. Yeah. Oh, nice. It makes nice. sense. Um, anyways, I, well, I was just curious. That was a stupid thought experiment. We have we haven't done an Angel or Buffy reference in a really long time, so I wanted to bring it back. Well done. Um, and it wasn't Arlo that got to do it, so. I know. I took Damn it. it. Damn it. Glad you snatched that away from him. Uh, so the, the whole Kuvira sort of sweet-talking Korra by building up that whole sense of uh, shared of familiarity, the shared burden of responsibility between the two of them that got Cora to say, yeah, man, I, I know what that's like. People have been upset at me a lot for, for decisions I've made. Uh, that and the fact that a little bit later, which we're about to get to, a little bit later, we have Cora seeing a vision of Kuvira as herself, specifically as Nega Cora. Yes, yes. Um, what, I have a, I feel like I know what that means, but uh, Arlo, what do you think that was all about? Like, why, what, what is that in there for? Well, I mean, that's another, you know, she, what I really like uh, about that moment is that, because that happens during the fight, right? During mm-hmm. the battle mm-hmm. of Zalfu. Um, you know, and I think it's Janora who makes the remark, like, I don't understand what's going on. You know, we, we, we got the poison out of her. Well, the poison wasn't everything yeah. the 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 real poison is the the ptsd that she's suffering and she sees she already sees in kuvira some of herself and then so during this fight and i like how um the fight itself as at least or especially at the beginning seems to mirror like that underground cage match yeah she had like kuvira's got like the the the, the boxing stance mm-hmm like in in between moves and everything and it's it you know it feels very similar and then of course you know she sees herself and her opponent and it paralyzes her yeah no that that's uh that was exactly it so 
Um, I, I just thought it was a way for them to, for the, for the writers, the showrunners to spell out for the, the audience. Remember this is a kid's show. It's on Nickelodeon. Um, that these two women are, are very similar, that this is the, this is the closest Cora's ever come to actually facing off against herself. Yeah. And, and this is not a pleasant fight to watch. Oh, God, it is a fucking beautiful fight to watch, man. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it is. What I really like about this fight, too, there's a couple things I really like about this fight. One is that it is actually not, and this is appropriate, it is not the kind of fluid, balls-to-the-wall kind of battle mm-hmm. you usually get because Korra is so off her game. Kavira controls this fight every yeah. single moment of this fight, except for the brief time when Korra actually finds the Avatar state. Um Kavira is so in control that there's a point where she does the fucking Bruce Lee shuffle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she, yeah. She gets up and she just, like, fucking Bruce Lee's. I mean, like, that is how in control mm-hmm. of this match she is. By the way, she's a fucking badass doing that little Bruce Lee Yes, move. she is. The animation, all three of the, the animation in all three of these episodes has been extraordinary, but in this fight sequence in particular, it was amazing. And before we continue, I just want to... The, the synopsis that I don't get to read anymore, I just want to share my closing line. The last line of the synopsis I was going to read for everybody was, and when the freshly re-energized Avatar arrives... Let's try that again. When the <laughs> freshly re-energized Avatar arrives... That's a difficult thing to say. Kuvira smacks the ever-loving taste out of Korra's mouth. <laughs> because this fight is never in question. It's... It's mean, man. Kuvira spanks Korra all over that field. And it's beautiful. It's tragic because I I no longer have any issues with Korra. I think we talked about this last week. Korra is absolutely the most interesting character on the show and all that. I'm not rooting for Korra to lose, but just the not only the animation and the fight choreography, which are next fucking level here, but just the character the the, the the way this speaks to both of those characters, the way this fight plays out. And like you said, the little, the Bruce Lee bounce or the Muhammad Ali shuffle that she does a few times, the super cocky way that Kuvira is very openly humiliating Korra in front of her army and in front of Korra's allies. Um, God damn it. it, One thing I really like though about this fight and the other side of it is that this is how good the writers understand everything about the show and the animators do. When Korra finally does go in the Avatar state, there is a very brief period where Kuvira looks like she's going to shit her pants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like she has underestimated this opponent. She thinks she can do it. Korra is rusty. And she proves – it ends up proving that Kuvira has read Korra correctly, that Korra is off her game and can't do it. But there's a really brief time where Korra has – hit the avatar state and Kavira is not in the fight anymore. Yeah, no, if in fact, I think if she hadn't had that little PTSD nega Cora hallucination there, uh, if the fight was over. Yeah. Oh yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Kavira. I mean, this is actually the thing I think is really interesting about this, this pair pairing. So every other villain we've gotten has been explicitly set up to be a threat to the avatar on a physical level that, um, that even in the Avatar state, they're going to be dangerous. Or we have, like, with Zaheer, where they have poisoned her, so her Avatar state isn't enough. But one thing I think is interesting is Kavira's dominance over Korra is a matter of will. 
Kavira is 100% certain of who she is. She's 100% certain of who she needs to be and where she needs to go. And that focus, that the eye of the tiger, since we're making boxing jokes, uh, <laughs> puts her at a level where even with Korra's elevated power, even with her being the avatar, she can't match Kavira because Korra does not know who she wants to be. She is not in balance with herself. So I really like that. The Kavira's extremely talented earthbender, but against an avatar who knows what they want, Kavira would not be a threat. And that makes her a threat to Korra as a character and not as a plot device, and I love that. It makes me so happy. Yeah. Man. man. Kavira. So, so last season we were talking about, or I was talking at least, about how Zaheer is my favorite villain of the show, and here we are, just uh, just six episodes into the uh, book four, and I'm like, fuck, maybe Kavira. Maybe Kavira is it. I will say I Kavira has, has always been my favorite villain, just because, I, for whatever reason I attach, I, I'm realizing more now why, but I, I love Kavira as a villain. She's yeah. awesome. I think so far Zaheer is still my favorite, but I mean we get we got like six or seven episodes left. So Kavira is no Unalak, I realize. But... <laughs> oh no, no, not at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, oh, she's hey, that a, was a she, she's no Unavatu. <laughs> that was a okay. No, we'll finish this out and then I'll do we'll we'll do some random thoughts that we've skipped over. But uh, Actually, so I want to say to, wait, to, to his our joke about Unavatu though. I want to just like tie back to something we talked about at the end of season two or even through all of season two's darkest days, which was that even though season two is weak, it does so much to set up the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. And here we are still where Unalak and Unavatu's kind of obnoxious plot to watch. We still with the spirit vines, with where Korra is, with the, the damage it did to the world. Season two is not ever written off as an afterthought, even though I am certain the writers realize they made some missteps, and we'll talk about that again next week. But um, there is some definite understanding that they made some missteps. But unlike a lot of shows where you have a bad season and you just try to write it off, season two is vital to this show, mm-hmm. even though its execution wasn't great. And I, I'm a big fan of the writers leaning into what was good about the show. So I, I'm going to make my jokes about Unlock because he sucks, but... <laughs> It's, I appreciate what what season two did for the show. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so, I mean, I could I could geek out over specific shit from the actual Korra Kuvira fight, but uh, we we can move on if you want. We can we can actually get to the the payoff no, for that fight. Okay. No, 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 Paul. You, Paul talks about awesome martial arts moves. is a big part of this podcast. What? What about Very this true. fight really grabbed you? Like, what? What were? What were your favorite things in this fight? Well, okay. So I feel like we're still discovering just how, how badass, um, a next level metal bender like Kuvira can be with just, just those little strips of metal. And so he, we, we've already seen her take on the bandits in, uh, in the first episode of the season. And here we get to see her take on the avatar and she um, I, in my notes, I wrote it down as ragdolling. I love the fact that she sort of uses her uh, metal bend, her little st- metal strips uh, to as puppet strings to just dance Cora all the fuck over that field. Um, and it's so clear that she's playing with Cora because like she, she 
blindfolds her with a metal strip. And she could, with her metal bending, she could leave that there, but Cora just rips it off. She, like, wraps it around Cora's wrist and flips her across the field. And there, she doesn't have to let go of Cora, but she does. And Cora comes back and keeps fighting. So that's evidence right there of just exactly how much Kuvira is completely toying with and outclassing Cora in the fight. Um, there's the move where. Kuvira, where Korra's about to firebend at Kuvira and Korra, or, uh, and Kor- Kuvira, goddamn, 2K names. Kuvira, like, just spins the earth underneath Korra's feet so that she firebends in the opposite direction. Beautiful. That was just a beautiful thing. And uh, for pure, like, martial arts stance, uh, there was one shot where Korra uh, lifts up a pillar of rock to to block an attack from Kuvira. And when she does that, she goes into a very, very clear, very specific, like, martial arts stance when she does that, and then follows through with uh, a form of earthbending that we've seen Toph do, where she uses the backs of her wrists to push that pillar of stone uh, towards Kuvira. Just the attention to detail. God damn it, I can't... I mean, I... I I will be in my bunk after we're done talking about this. and this is maybe a good time to ask Paul, and I'm, I'm, I, I ask myself this every time when I go through these shows because it's hard to remember going back. Avatar's martial arts stuff was phenomenal. Yes. Like this is I'm gonna, when I say this, but Avatar. I mean, Korra's working at another level, right? Like the martial arts stuff in, in this series is like is somehow manages to be even even better than yeah. Avatar's. Yeah. Well, I, I've I'm mixed on that because I feel like. Um, uh, I can't remember his name now. Was it Sifu Kisu? What was his name? The martial arts uh, instructor or whatever. The the what the hell was his his title? You know what I'm talking about? The, co- yeah, yeah. the martial arts coordinator on For the, Avatar. Yeah, Avatar. Like one of the things we talked so much about Avatar: and The Last Airbender was that so much of the the bending moves were like actual martial arts. So they had Sifu Kisu, I think was his name, who. Uh, assigned a specific martial art, uh, like real-world martial art style, to each of the bending, and then that was played out in the animation. We don't see that as much in Korra. There's much more freestyle stuff going on in Korra, and I don't think Sifu Kisu is involved in Legend of Korra. I, do, I don't remember seeing his name in any credits anywhere. I think he did Avatar, but he's not involved in Korra. Um, so every once in a while, we'll see specific martial arts moves, like what I just mentioned with, with uh, Korra in this fight, but... Um, I would say the choreography and the animation of the fight sequences is far superior to Avatar. But if you're looking for specific, like recognizable martial arts styles, I think Avatar still takes it. Uh, for what it's worth, uh, he is the martial arts consultant for the show, apparently, from what I'm looking at through seasons one and two. Okay. And has a credit for season three, but not he is not the consultant in season three and season four. Okay. All right. Well, I, I stand mostly corrected. But <laughs> anyways, I still feel like the the fighting that we see and, and I feel like I've commented on this before, that there's a lot more sort of freestyle stuff happening in Korra um, and less of the structured like martial arts movements. But. But, well, that's an interesting point. And, I, you know, my my read on this is that it, it is accurately reflects the melding of the different cultures mm-hmm. in the modern Korra world, mm-hmm. that they have picked up aspects of each other's um forms mm-hmm. um whereas before the nations were still very separate when we got into the avatar verse so this represents the we're going to bruce lee the bruce lee 
like merging of martial arts right that we wouldn't have gotten before so that's my that's my alternate alternate take on that i like it um i feel like the last thing to talk about in this episode is the the rescue of cora yeah um, yeah the 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 air kids the air kids up. yeah uh what'd you think about that erla you can't handle all this Milo. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think, I think it says a lot that at this point, uh, Kuvira is not Kuvira. I'm sorry. I, I messed up the K names too. Man. Cora is brought so low that she has to have an assist from the air kids. You know, she has, she can't rescue herself. Mm-hmm. Like, because I, I don't know if we mentioned, but Kuvira has her like, um, ba- basically chained up just like Zaheer did. Yeah. You know, same position and everything. Um, and the air kids have to come rescue her. And it was a very impressive rescue. Those ki- those kids got mad skills. The Airbenders nation, they, their nation has gotten pretty powerful over the last three years. They are no joke. They hold off an entire army, two of them. Yeah, you know it's crazy because uh, the end of book three, it took Janora and like all of the air nomads to create that uh, that tornado or whatever that that cyclone that pulled Zaheer out of the sky and here it's just Opal and Janora uh, doing basically a hurricane that holds back an entire army and I love the scene of the the mecha the mech suits crawling their way through that hurricane so are we seeing why Sozin decided to start with the air nation yeah yeah absolutely good point wow um yeah, what do we think about Opal being so uh, gung ho? It was, I, I, I was a little baffled by, and now I accept. I'm, I'm fine with it now. But for just a second, it took me aback when Opal was like, "You've got to go fight her, Cora. You, you can't. We have to go." Or, or they were talking about the fact that Su Yin was sneaking into the camp, and they're like, "We shouldn't be stopping her. We should be helping her." And Janora's like, "You know, you, you took an oath of non-aggression when you joined the." Uh, air no, the air nation uh, you can't do that or whatever my my first thought was uh, well you guys really aren't like I, I I misinterpreted it as nonviolent like uh, you know airbenders have taken an oath of nonviolence and clearly they are not nonviolent because they're traveling around the world kicking the crap out of bandits and stuff uh, but then when I re-listened to it I was like oh no no she says non-aggression so her point here is that the Arab nation is not going to to preemptively strike against anybody. They will only act in defense right. or to defend others. Um, yeah. What do you think about Opal being so like sort of bloodthirsty here? Um, I'm yeah, I'm not really sure I'd stop to, to think about that in, in contrast with the, uh, with Cora. Um, I mean, she's pissed. I get it. I'd be <laughs> she... pissed too. <laughs> Opal, Opal's kind of taking a a uh, stance versus the um, Air Nation that Kavira did versus Zhao Fu, honestly. Ah, interesting. Interesting. I mean, we'll see if that, like, I mean, Arlo, do you think that portends anything? Do you think that she is going to be the Air Nomad version of Kavira, or do you think she's just really upset because her family's in danger? Um, I just took it as her being upset that her family was in danger. Okay. But who knows? I mean, we haven't really seen a lot of what's going on in Opal's head this season, so mm-hmm. I could be wrong. Aside from being really mad at Boleyn. Yeah. 
Um, okay. Right. So uh, I guess that's basically it. I've got, there are a couple random things that I forgot to mention earlier. One of them, I'm not sure this really, I don't know if I have a point to make here, but it was an interesting thing that I noticed when, um, when uh, in the calling, when uh, Toph is talking about, or not even when, not even when Toph is talking about it, but when Korra is having the visions of uh, Amon, Unalak, and, and Zaheer, I just noted that Amon used bloodbending to rearrange things inside of Korra. That was how he took people's bending away. Unalak pulled the Rava spirit out of Korra, and Zaheer forced his metal poison into Kahor into Korra. I again, I don't know what that means, but I was just like, this is so fascinating. The because we see the the acts of violation that those three people made against Korra in in succession, and so I just noticed the differences in their tactics. It's very interesting. I um the 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 this series is, presents an overall interesting um, attack upon the Avatar from all levels. Like not just whether the Avatar is worth it, but like there is a a definite sustained um, assault upon the Avatar that Korra has as a series. I think it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a I have a random thing I want to shout out, which is way less um, substantial than that. But I want to shout out to the character designers for Kuvira's awesome um not just her like awesome like awesomely designed hair but the fact that her hair changes throughout the battle mm-hmm. with Korra we go from Kavira's like badass military braid like her normal hairstyle is like functional and badass and then it like deconstructs over the course of the fight until it's like all hanging down that is not an easy thing to do as a as like an animator because you have to change things slightly as you go anyways excellent work by the character designers and the animators Kavira's hair is is the kind of detail that only awesome animation gets so thumbs up speaking of fine details that that maybe a lot of people aren't uh, appreciating enough the uh the design of Kuvira's earth empire army the the uniforms specifically so there are obvious things like um, even though I don't know that we ever hear what the ranks are, captain, sergeant, uh, lieutenant, whatever. I don't rem- remember anybody ever being referred to by those things, except that Kuvira used to be a captain. But we do see that people have um, bars on their shoulders, like chevrons. Uh, so I think I think Varric and Bolin both have two chevrons on their shoulder, and Kuvira has three with a with something above them, and Batar Jr. I think has three, whatever. So there's that to denote the various ranks, but also some of the other details. Um, everybody has everybody has basically the same uh, multi shade green uniform, but then different parts of it are outlined in silver, and like some people have their cuffs are outlined at the top and the bottom, and other people the cuff is only outlined at the top. Some people, the apron on the front of the costume is just green and others it's outlined in silver. Um, and all of that is our ways of denoting rank and status in, in her military. I like that. I yeah. did not notice that. That is fascinating. 
Neither did I, yeah. So, anyway. This is a good show, people. It's all right. It really is. It's it right. really is. I, I was so angry when I had to stop watching again this week. I know I said that last week, but I was infuriated <laughs> when I had to stop watching. This is killing me. I don't know how. Okay, I have two things. I don't know how I stop again. But also, I don't know how I don't watch the next three episodes tomorrow instead of waiting till the two weeks or so until we actually record again. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, we're, we're looking at another gap week here, too. So This this may be our last gap week if we're very lucky, though. I think so. Yeah. I think it might be. So, I'm sorry, everyone. I don't know how. I, I can't believe I'm doing this to any of us. I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't believe it. I wasn't going to throw you under the bus, but you've just outed yourself. This time it's Eric's fault. Oh. It was me. It was it was a lot of poop cruises by Arlo yep. up to this point, mm-hmm. but it is mm-hmm. it is now me. At least yours uh, is work related, right? It is work related. Yes, I'm in San Francisco next week for work, and okay. and to be honest, on work travel, I generally do podcasts. But the time zone difference when I'm in San Francisco is so great yeah. that um, it's I can't be guaranteed that I'll get back to my place in time mm-hmm. in order to record. Yeah. So it's the time zone totally kills it. <sighs> it's fine. That's fine. I mean, we don't we don't want to rush anything, right? We want to savor this. We've only after tonight right. there are only four episodes of this podcast left, people. So and only three of them about episodes. That's I mean, right. that's, we have three more episodes of Korra uh, discussion left, and then a Avatar Returns series wrap party. I'm yeah. sad. I, I mean, I, I'm going to be glad to not have to worry about a schedule anymore because I'm bad at schedules, but. This is killing me, y'all. I'm, yeah. I've really, I'm really, I've really appreciated these conversations. Yeah, this is, this has been great. I'm having a good time, even though Arlo's here, I'm still having a good time. You know, even even Arlo can't ruin this. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> even Arlo can't varick this up, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for not julying us, Arlo. <laughs> Anytime. Um, all right. So, uh, thank you, everybody at home. Uh, for joining us. As always, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website theavatarreturns.com. Links will also be posted on the parent show site gobbledygeekpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes to make sure you never miss another exciting episode. And while you're there, please uh, do us a favor, write a review uh, or rate us, help spread the word. If you want to contact... (laughs) If you want to, what is that word? Contact? If you would like to contact us, please send your correspondence, care of Monkey Yahtzee, uh, to tarpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can always find us on social media, facebook.com slash the avatar returns or twitter.com slash tarpodcast. And on Twitter, I am at haunt1013. Eric is at salon. That's S A A L O N. And Arlo is at unplugged crazy. Next week, as we just said, we've got another uh, off week, theoretically the last off week before we begin our final four uh, of the Avatar Returns podcast. Three more show-centric episodes and then the big rap party, which we have no idea what we're going to do, but we'll probably all be wasted for it. Um, So there's nothing new next week, but we will be back uh, the week of April 9th with three more chapters. Arlo, crack your knuckles. Get ready. Here we go. Oh, God. Oh, God. It's all been leading to this. We got all that Oof. stupid uh, conversation out of the way just so we could hear your predictions for chapter. Well, let's uh, let, let, let's hope I do better than last week. Yes. Well, you could hardly do worse. <laughs> so, chapter four hundred seven reunion. Um. Clearly, um, the Earth Kingdom is reunited, and it feels so good. <laughs> 
Okay, 408 Remembrances. Um, that's uh, f- fucking uh, Remembrance Day from Firefly. Uh, the, the they celebrate that. Okay, All right. I'm doing really well. Yeah, doing really well this week. You're off to a great start. This isn't this isn't a train wreck. I mean, it's a little it's a little a little depressingly boring, but it's not a train wreck, so that's good. Uh, I'm, get, I'm getting my I'm getting my groove back. All right, here we go. 409 Beyond the Wilds. Uh, Beyond the Wilds. Um, it's 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 like the uh, Avatar equivalent of that movie with Emil Hirsch. Uh, into the wild clearly uh cora is going to go into the wild uh coin herself alexander super tramp grow a beard and die in a trailer that's how the show ends there Spoil- you go all right there there's the arlo we know all that, right. that was pretty good spoilers for into the wild but that was pretty good <laughs> so. you're not missing much oh come on now it's, it's a it's a movie sean penn made you're not missing much okay until then everybody uh i'd just like you to know Recently, I've been having these strange feelings inside. It's like I'm, I'm concerned with others. And there's this nagging voice in my head constantly telling me what's right from wrong. But head voices are liars. What do head voices know? Na, 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 na.